This beautiful young lady is Alyssa Yard. She is a senior in high school this year. She attends Rivers Academy or Rivers School in Alpharetta. She's also a member of Orbit, and she's been with Orbit four years. Four years. Four years. And she's going to sing for us this morning. She is a wonderful, wonderful dancer. If you've ever seen someone climb up the wall with their legs straight up against the wall, this is Alyssa. <laughs> and she's also a good singer. And so this morning she's going to come and sing for us. A, what a beautiful name. I saw her say, I have a new name written down in glory. <laughs> We're talking about the name of Jesus today. <laughs>
In a continuation of old school uh, this morning, um, I want to use, uh, actually use God's Word. Um, in the pew in front of you is a copy of God's Word. Uh, I'd ask you to do two things. One, I'd ask you to take a copy and turn to Revelation chapter 2. And the second thing I'd ask you to do is to take the calendar, the church calendar from the bulletin, and turn it inside out, and it gives you a space a white space to take a couple of notes this morning. Pastor and Jeannie are such a tandem with our screens and our audio visuals. With them away and with the computer on the fritz, it gives us a chance to just be together and to look at God's Word and literally touch and hold God's Word together this morning. So if you'll do those two things for me, I'd be very grateful as I stand in front of you today. Uh, Bill, uh, you didn't know um, Victory in Jesus would play um, a role today when you um, laid that out, just like we didn't know that the music this morning would fit perfectly. But God knew. And every time I hear Victory in Jesus, I think of this room, now many years ago, filled with a sea of blue. It was the funeral for my brother, and there were officers inside and outside, hundreds and hundreds of them. My brother, David, turns out was all in on his job as a Fulton County police officer. It was all he ever wanted to do. And thankfully, he had friends, Hal, who helped him do what it was he always wanted to do. And that December morning, he was all in. There was an alarm, and he went, and he was all in. And while he didn't walk out of that jewelry store at the Prado, he walks today in heaven. And I remember that morning, that funeral afternoon, and the victory in Jesus, and Pat Miller sang that song in this place, in this spot. Kay may have played that day. I don't remember who played. I know Gene Brooks was on the organ. But this concept of all in has struck me this week as I think about our time together today. 
I don't know when I first heard the concept of all in. It may not be a phrase that's familiar with you to you, but it's a phrase we use in our business all the time. I just was in a series of meetings in Orlando uh, 10 days ago, and uh, it was a point of topic of our business for this year that we as employees, we as salespeople, we as, as healthcare providers, we needed to be all in on our business. It wasn't the first time I'd heard it. I've I've heard it in, 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 in poker settings. Now, I know I'm Baptist, and talking about gambling uh, and the pulpit is probably not what, we, uh, what, what you reasonably expected. But don't worry, I'm not going to speak about dancing or smoking, either one of them today. But the phrase all in is when somebody believes they have an advantage with the cards that they are dealt, and they push everything in. They push all of their winnings in, and they go all in. It's not a concept that is universal, that is uh, uh, only to man. It is a godly concept, this concept of all in. And I'd like to draw our attention this morning for a few minutes to, ex to uh, Revelation chapter 2, where I think God is calling you and calling me to be all in in this place. You'll remember the revelation to John the Apostle is just that. It is God's revelation to John. John is writing as fast as he can everything that he is seeing and he's hearing. He is scribing the events of our future. Now there are, there's history there. There's, there's, there's great battles to be fought. There's the good and evil. There's Satan and there's Christ. All of that is in the book of the Revelation. But early in the book, Jesus is speaking to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And while he was speaking to literal churches, and yes, these churches did exist, and yes, the message was for those churches in that day, the message cannot be lost in our day. This is the wonderful value of God's Word is that while it was written a long time ago, the book of Genesis to the book of the Revelation, the entirety of this word is about Jesus. And it is about you and me and our relationship with the Son of the living God. And so if we look at God's word from that vantage point, we can look at Revelation chapter 2 and understand it was written to a church, a literal church founded by Paul, the church of Ephesus. A church that was supported and led by Timothy. A church that John himself was part of. We can see what was there through the words of Christ to the apostle as he writes them down. And he said to the angel or the messenger of the church at Ephesus, Please write, the one who holds the stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, I know your toil, and I know your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else 
I'm coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this going for you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolodians, which I also hate. He who has an ear, or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. From there, he goes on and writes to the other six churches, but I want to focus our time this brief moment that we have together on the church at Ephesus. A church that is sturdy and stable in its understanding of right and wrong, of teaching and of error, of heresy and godliness. And God compliments them on their ability to understand right from wrong and to throw heresy out. That is their point of strength. They also have a point of strength called perseverance, not unlike this church body, which for many years struggled with numbers and people, and, and yet today we continue to grow in a number of different dimensions. So he's complimenting, he starts with what's working well in this church at Ephesus, but he chastises them for having left their first love, for having left that which was moving them early in their relationship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but this caused me to think back to my salvation experience. I was 10 years old. I confess I didn't know everything then that I wish I had known about accepting Jesus. But from that moment on to this moment today, I'm as saved as saved can be. And that had to do with a person, not a concept. It had to do with a, with a relationship, not a practice. And so when I think back, and when you may think back to your salvation experience, for those of us who know Christ, it should be about the person Jesus and what he did for you and the magnitude of what he did for you and for me on that cross. It should be a humbling experience. It should be a, a, a point of contrition. It should be a point where we are so humble, we are face down and prostrate in front of a risen Savior. That's what they were missing. They were missing that early love. They were missing that early humility. They were missing that early sense of the person of Christ in their presence and their response to it. Oh, they were persevering. Oh, they knew the word. Oh, they used the word efficiently and effectively. God complimented that. But he asked them to do what I would suggest we may want to do personally. Push the restart button. Now, this morning when I woke up, um, oh, there's a routine that, we, that I go through in the morning. I, um, um, I check Facebook. Now, there'll be those who say, well, uh, aren't you supposed to be praying? Yes, probably that would be, that would, that would be true. And uh, aren't there other things that you do in the morning? And I would say, yes, there are other things I do in the morning. But the, one of the first things I do in the morning is I check Facebook. 
I want to see who has sent me a note, who has tagged me or said something to me. I like keeping up with people that way. And yet this morning when I woke up, Facebook would not come on. I don't know why. It was a blank screen. I waited. I waited. I didn't wait long. And I pushed the restart button. I turned the phone off. And then I waited. And I turned the phone on. And there it was. We're used to pushing restart buttons. We may not be used to doing it with our faith. And that's what God is asking this church in Ephesus to do, is to push a restart button, to go back and to do the things that were the things you first did, the things that demonstrated your love for me, the things that demonstrated your humility, both for yourselves and for others. So as I've thought about this, and I thought about our fellowship, and I thought about our church, this is where you may want to take a couple of notes. This is what I understood from God's Word. What you understand is what the Holy Spirit will bring to you today as you read and reread this text. But for me, there are three points that I would make. Three areas where you and I can push a restart button on our walk with Christ to best demonstrate that we are committed to our first love. And the first one is study. Uh, God's word in 2 Timothy talks about showing ourselves approved. It means giving some time to study. And I think that study involves three areas. One, personal study. You and I have the opportunity to study God's word personally. The church at Ephesus had a few letters from Paul. The church at Ephesus may have had some letters and some early writings from the apostles of Jesus Christ. They had the entirety of the Old Testament in front of them. So for you and I, what God complimented was their study. And for you and I to demonstrate our first love would be to study personally the entirety of God's word. There are those today who are questioning the value of the Old Testament. Some names are prominent in that regard. But the entirety of God's word points to Jesus, points to our Savior, points to our first love. So you and I might study personally. We might study corporately. That's this assembly. And we might engage others to come to this assembly. We study the word corporately under the pastor's leadership. David is a funny man. He's, um, David uses manuscripts for his sermons. When you're in uh, seminary and when you're, um, when you're uh, in Bible college, they teach you how to manuscript a sermon. To some, it's reading a sermon. To those of us who've had that privilege of sitting in those classes, it is understanding the significance of God's word and not wanting to err. To always have in front of us what God is saying to you through us so that we don't err. And too many times today we see prominent Christian teachers and pastors say a word or a phrase or an off this or off that because they're not using a manuscript 
I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying corporate worship led by a man who is sensitive to God's word and God's will is where we need to be and where others of our kind ought to be. And then finally, what we may want to do to demonstrate our first love in this area of study, we can study personally, we can study corporately, but we can study in small groups, and it's a moment for me to manage up our Sunday school program. We've got three wonderful classes, plus areas for kids. If you're not involved in a small group Bible study on Sunday morning, there's one on Tuesday evening. If you're not involved on Tuesday evening, there's a Bible study on Wednesday evening. There's plenty of opportunity in a small group setting for us to understand, acknowledge, and learn about our wonderful Savior. So that you and I, while we persevere, while we study God's word, we are demonstrating our first love, which is Christ. So while we may study God's word to demonstrate our first love, I would suggest we need to pray to demonstrate our first love. Pastor's been teaching us in a wonderful series on the Lord's Prayer, and we are encouraged in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. You and I are to be prayer warriors. It's not a request. It's not a, an ask. It is a command. And Pastor's been teaching us about prayer in his sermon series, The Lord's Prayer, which, by the way, he'll conclude next Sunday. But what he's been teaching us is about, one, a relationship. You can't read the Lord's Prayer now, not having sat in this, under his ministry and under this teaching and not understand that this is about a relationship. And if we think about our first love, it isn't our ability to know God's word. It is our ability to live God's word that indicates first love. The second thing we may want to do is not only have a relationship in our prayer time, and that relationship involves not only asking and petitioning, which is in the Lord's Prayer, but listening and obeying. We may also want to pray for those that we know. I used a prayer sheet a few minutes ago when we did our corporate prayer time. There's a sheet that's in the lobby every Sunday morning. It's on yellow or green pieces of paper, and it lists people's names that we can pray for. So while we may be a church that knows good from bad, right from wrong, heresy from truth, and while we may be a church that perseveres even in adversity, not unlike the Ephesus church, we too want to demonstrate our first love and our alignment to our first love. And we can do that through study, but we can do that through prayer and a relationship and praying for those that we know. And I assert that that list is the names we know. But we can also pray for those that are unknown to us. You're going to laugh because I'm going back to Facebook, but Facebook serves a wonderful purpose for our church. Each morning at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m., we post a Bible verse to our Facebook page. You may not know, but we have over 5,000 people who have liked our Facebook page as a church. We don't have 5,000 in the room right now, but we have 5,000 who have liked our Facebook page. And depending on the Bible text that we post at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., we have thousands of people who acknowledge it. They either like it, they share it, 
or they copy it. A most recent one that we uh, did had 8,000 different touches. 8,000 different touches. When I look at them every morning, part of what I'm looking at Facebook is to check those that have responded to our Bible uh, quotes. I see the same names. I see many. I see Jeff. I see John and Sheila and many, many more who every morning wake up with our Bible verse. How do I know that? Because they type the word amen or they type I believe or they type thank you. Dozens of them. So it's not just the people that we know that we can pray for. And it's not just in prayer building a relationship with our Savior. All of those are very important. But there's, there are thousands of people in these walls that will never come inside these walls that you and I can pray for as a demonstration of our first love. And finally, while we may study to show our first love and while we may pray to show our first love, we must serve. Serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 100. There's no, no secret that today is a meal day. The fifth Sunday of every month is community meal for our church, and we have people who have prepared food for those who could not prepare food for themselves. And we'll feed 100-plus people today at the Methodist Church. It's a tradition of this church that we serve, and we serve others. It's also a tradition at this church that we serve when we are comfortable. Some of us are comfortable. I, I walked into the lobby this morning and the brightest face I've seen in a while, uh, no, no, not just yours, Paul, yours is a bright face, uh, yes, uh, was Betty Angevine. Uh, she's been out nursing Harry back to health, which by the way is an answer to prayer that you're here today. But Betty's been taking care of Harry and a knee replacement and they've been at home. But there's nobody more comfortable standing in front of our church on a Sunday morning than Betty Angevine. She just is comfortable there. It's what she was made to do, to say hello to people when they come to our church. And she does it really well. So we can serve others. Community meal is a great example. We can do it within a comfort zone. Greeting is an example. But I think the challenge is let's serve when we're uncomfortable. And that brings me to Vacation Bible School. Now, some of us have retired from children. We're on to grandchildren. And we love our grandchildren. They're a blessing from God. But taking care of someone else's children for a week, boy. But we have EBS coming in July. And we need hands. There's a meeting next Monday night about Bible school, Sharice and Donna and so many others are involved and they could use your hands. And if they can't use your hands during that week in July, that's okay. Put your hands together and pray for them would be just fine. You see, this concept of first love is not so difficult to understand. The church, I'm convinced the church at Ephesus, when they read the words of John that he'd written here the words of Jesus that John translated to them, I'm, I know they immediately understood what Jesus meant. 
They understood why they were strong. They knew the truth of the word. And they lived the truth of the word. But I think they knew immediately where they were weak. That they'd left something behind. They may have left Jesus behind. And their love for him. And their adoration for him. In their humility for what he had done for them. I think they knew promptly what was wrong. And I think these are other ways they figured out how to push that restart button and to go back and begin to do the things that they had done early on. They continued to be strong in the word, but I think their prayer lives must have changed. I think their service to the body and outside the body changed. I think their giving may have changed. I think their pattern of worship may have changed. All to demonstrate their love for Jesus. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, didn't leave them with the removal of the lampstand. If we go back to the second chapter of the book of the Revelation, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you do at first, or else I am coming to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The irony here is Nicholas. Nicholas knew Jesus. The early church fathers attribute this Nicholas as one of the seven first anointed as an apostle, I'm sorry, as an elder or disciple of the apostles in the early church. Nicholas was a believer. Nicholas was a Christ follower. Nicholas understood the truth and understood at one point a first love, Jesus. But over the course of time, Nicholas and a group of others carved themselves away and perverted the gospel into sin and immorality. It was easy for this church at Ephesus to understand. They were girded and grounded in the word of God. They understood what Nicholas was doing and what he was saying was wrong. That the way they approached the human body, the sacrifices, the food from sacrifices, all of that was wrong. And they understood that. The irony is we're dealing with, and God is complimenting the church on knowing heresy from reality and from truth, from a former Christ follower, a man who sat under the apostles' teaching. So the cautionary tale for us today as we think about this issue of first love is don't lose the first love. And I'm convinced that God was saying to them, you hate this heresy as much as I hate it. Be careful. Be on guard. Don't find yourself where Nicholas has found himself, which is distant from a loving God. Let's be thoughtful about our study, about our prayer life, and about our life of service in this place as we want to remain close to that first love.
And Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, to the saints of old and those that we will one day meet from the church at Ephesus. We give you thanks. Father, thank you for the word to the church at Ephesus because like the word itself, it has application for us in this place today. Father, we're grateful people. Yes, we're grateful for all that we have. We're grateful for all that we can do. But help us, Father, to remain most grateful for what you did for us. That nothing, nothing, nothing we did caused you to send your son on our behalf. That was your love and only your love. Help that to be our point of reference. Help that to be our compass point. Help that to be our North Star, Lord. That we would love you for having loved us when we're so unlovely. And now may the grace and the peace of you, Father, anoint these your servants. Give them comfort and rest Give them work and labor that this week we may demonstrate the light of Christ to a dark and dying world would be my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.